Crested in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. And good afternoon to you. I'm Al Cresta, thanking you for joining me. And uh, it's good to be back with you. Uh, I've got another hour ahead of us talking about the things that matter most. And I want to thank all those who uh, allowed me to participate in the Corporate Travel's Good News uh, Cruise, which uh, Ave Maria Radio and Corporate Travel sponsor uh, every year. Uh, We had over 800 people there, uh, great speakers, uh, Father Mike Schmitz. We had um, uh, Archbishop Nauman, his name slipped in mind for a minute. Not only was he, uh, gave us one of the most powerful homilies I've ever heard at the close of our uh, time together, he was just absolutely enjoyable. Uh, as a dining partner, and uh, he's exactly the kind of um, archbishop one hopes is there, right? Um, He's got uh, wisdom, he's got accessibility, he's got uh, an easy laugh, uh, outstanding time with him. And again, we had our our friends, uh, Dr. Ray was there, uh, Teresa Tamio and her husband, Deacon Dom, uh, there as well. We had uh, Alicia and Mike Herndon with us. They did a wonderful job. Uh, Scott and Kimberly Hahn were with us the first night. Uh, so you can see it was a wide range of people. And I'll, uh, again, urge you to consider joining us next year in 2025 for the Good News Cruise. Now, what are we doing today? Today is a day where we uh, recognize the 50th anniversary of the English publication of Alexander Solzhenitsyn's The Gula Archipelago. Solzhenitsyn was a twice-decorated captain in the Soviet Army. He was stripped of his rank, arrested, convicted in 1945 for privately criticizing Stalin. And this masterpiece eventually gets the Nobel Prize for Literature, and it became an international condemnation of the Soviet camp system and the Soviet Union itself. We're going to uh, talk with Dr. Elizabeth Spaulding from the Victims of Communism Museum about this thing. And then we're also going to take time with Dr. Daniel Lendman of Ave Maria University, uh, Assistant Professor of Theology there, about the possibility of an empty hell. But first, the headlines. Thanks, Al. Good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Tuesday, February 6th. It's the Feast of St. Paul Miki and Companions. Today's news brought to you by Ave Maria University. Your vocation location is at AveMaria.edu. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell says the Senate border deal that includes funding for Ukraine and Israel appears to be dead. It's been made pretty clear to us uh, by the Speaker that it will not That's because House Speaker Mike Johnson says the bill would be dead on arrival in his chamber as he claims it doesn't go far enough to stop the flow of illegal immigration. The House is set to vote to impeach DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas today. I don't believe there's ever been a cabinet secretary who was so blatantly 
openly, willfully, and without remorse, did exactly the opposite of what the federal law requires them to do. Republican Speaker Mike Johnson telling reporters ahead of the vote that Mayorkas engaged in a complete dereliction of duty in his handling of the southern border. If the vote is successful, Mayorkas would be the first cabinet official to peach in almost a century and a half. The jury reaching a verdict for the mother of a Michigan school shooter, Ethan Crumley. On count one of involuntary manslaughter, as to Madison Baldwin, we find the defendant guilty of involuntary manslaughter. Jennifer Crumley's son, Ethan, shot and killed four classmates while injuring seven others at Oxford High School in November of 2021. Former President Trump is not immune for prosecution related to his alleged efforts to overturn the 2020 election. A U.S. appeals court ruled that Trump doesn't have presidential immunity from criminal charges. White House correspondent and attorney John Decker says Trump is running out of options. Any executive immunity that may have protected him while he served as president no longer protects him against this prosecution. Trump's expected to appeal. From your AveMariaRadio.net news desk, I'm Steve Clark. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta, and it's been 50 years since the English translation of Alexandra Solzhenitsyn's The Gulag Archipelago uh, first appeared. Uh, this, of course, as I mentioned earlier, uh, ended up winning a Nobel Prize for Literature. It is a massive work. Uh, he recounts his years of imprisonment in Soviet labor camps for privately criticizing Stalin. And uh, to, to make it even more shocking, uh, this work, once it hit uh, the, the public, uh, became a major condemnation, not only of the Soviet uh, camp system, but of the Soviet Union itself. With me right now, uh, we've got Dr. Elizabeth Spaulding, chairman of the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation and founding director of the Victims of Communism Museum. Uh, they are, uh, again, having uh, events uh, to celebrate uh, the 50-year anniversary of the Gulag Archipelago. Uh, again, uh, Dr. Spaulding is a senior fellow at the Pepperdine University School of Public Policy and a visiting fellow at the Van Andel Graduate School of Government at Hillsdale College. She's the author of The First Cold Warrior, Harry Truman, Containment, and the Remaking of Liberal Internationalism. And she's co-author of A Brief History of the Cold War, and you can follow her work at victimsofcommunism.org. Dr. Spaulding, good to have you here. Thanks. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you this afternoon. Well, tell me first of all about uh, what the Victims of Communism uh, is doing to help highlight the 50th anniversary of the Gulag. We're doing a major event, and, and uh, we highlight the, the Gulag Archipelago at other times. But because of the 50th anniversary of the publication in English, we thought this was an opportune time. Some people that are listening right now might remember having seen Alexander Solzhenitsyn. They might have even read the Gulag Archipelago. Uh, but so many in the rising generations, and, and even those that were alive at the time that he was, don't know anything about this great work. So we're doing a major seminar. We're going to have remarks from Dr. Daniel Mahoney, mm -hmm. who is an expert on, on Solzhenitsyn, and we're going to have a panel discussion. 
and in general, we'll be highlighting the parts of our museum that talk about Solzhenitsyn and, and this great work. Yeah. Um, the question from people, and I'm, by the way, I, I, I do think that this is, this is a conversation that needs to go on uh, for the next generation. The Solzhenitsyn was so big uh, for those of us who grew up in the 50s, 60s, and became aware of him in the 70s and 80s and into the 90s, but why should younger people today spend the time getting to know Solzhenitsyn's story? Yes. Uh, well, it's an amazing story uh, in terms of biography, and then it's an extraordinary story in terms of his work, including but not only the Gulag Archipelago. And on the biography part, you touched on several very important points, but uh, something that a lot of young people won't understand is that Solzhenitsyn um, proved himself in World War II as a patriot. Yeah. Uh, he was considered a very successful um, officer in the Soviet Red Army. And then he, he is taken down, as you said, for no real reason, private criticism, and he is sentenced to the Gulag for eight years, and that's the beginning of his transformation into an anti-totalitarian, an anti-communist. And this starts fusing biography and the philosophy of his writing, where Solzhenitsyn uh, becomes somebody who completely changes philosophically over time, uh, and, and it comes out in this great work. Uh, and so that's part of what young people need to know, the lessons from the Gulag Archipelago, because they are relevant today, not just for the time of the Soviet Union. Right. I mean, we're seeing the uh, continued growth of another communist uh, nation-state, and that, of course, is the People's Republic of China. Um, exactly. And so communism isn't over, I guess is what I'm saying. No, no. As we say at the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation, communism didn't die with the collapse of the Soviet Union and the Berlin Wall before then. And in fact, there are over 1.5 billion people still forced to live under communism today. Uh, and that includes the, the People's Republic of China. D the story is told of Solzhenitsyn uh, hearing a, a man. Now, you, you, you'll correct me on this, but um, asking the question, why have these things come upon us? And the response was, we have forgotten God. Where yes. is God in Solzhenitsyn's thought? Yes, so... When you read the Gulag Archipelago, and I do commend it to everybody, and if they don't have time to read the three volumes, there's, a, there's an excellent one-volume abridged version that Solzhenitsyn himself approved. So This so is I by Erickson? It, so it was edited by him. There's a new 50th anniversary edition of it, okay. and the um, introductory essay is by Solzhenitsyn's widow. Oh. And so it is that that translation. It's just out. It's well worth adding to your library. Yeah. Um, I commend it to all listeners. Um, but it, but this is something that is um, pointing to, how can I put this? Um, Solzhenitsyn is, is talking about God all the way through the Gulag Archipelago, but it is not, 
it is not shoved down people's throats right. in the work. It is just it is a present theme because what he's meditating on is the battle of good versus evil. Yeah. There's an Augustinian tone to a lot of the Gulag Archipelago, and and some people may be familiar with um, one of the most famous passages from from the work where where Solzhenitsyn talks about how. There's a line running through every human heart, Mm -hmm. um, separating good and evil. And what he sees is he sees it writ large in the totalitarian communist regime of the Soviet Union, and then he sees it in particular people that he's encountering in those eight years in the Gulag, uh, which, you know, run the gamut from the the camp officials that, that have a lot of evil in them to, as he says, almost living saints, people who keep their faith and grow in their faith. Um, and he himself found faith in the gulag. Uh, so, so by meditating on that, that battle of good versus evil, he finds God um, and, and talks about that. Um, but, but it is something where you're really changed by reading the work um, and understand that he gets this both writ large as well as the battle that goes on within each soul. Would you say that central to Solzhenitsyn's moral and political vision is the non-negotiable distinction between truth and falsehood? I would absolutely say that, and I would um, say that um, the essay that he had timed for when he gets exiled from the Soviet Union. So, so the, um, he had written the Gulag Archipelago. It had taken him about 10 years to write it in secret. He has um, gotten, um, through Samizdat Underground Publishing, he's gotten a couple of copies out uh, to the West. That's how it ends up being published um, in, in late 1973, first in Russian um, in, from a Paris publisher, and then in 1974 in English and other languages. And so he also has secreted with a couple of people that he trusts within the Soviet Union, copies of it. And, and so he, um, he has to um, get, this, get this across to people. Um, and so it's definitely um, what you say. It is, it, is about, it is about truth. His entire search is for truth. And at the time he is stripped, arrested, stripped of his citizenship, and, and um, exiled, ejected from the Soviet Union, he publishes an essay called Live Not by Lies. Mm. And I recommend that to people if they have not ever looked at it. Live Not by Lies is from 1974, exactly at that time. And he makes this whole point about truth uh, in that. So it's, it's one place that has many of his themes that he elaborates on in the Gulag Archipelago and other works in that one essay. And the whole point is to search for the truth, live by truth, and not assent to the lie or lies. Very good. Very good. Um, you were mentioning earlier editions of the Gulag Archipelago. Could you, again, recommend one in particular for us? I think this new edition, it's put out by Vintage Publications, is very fine because it's the corrected, abridged edition. So if some people have on their shelf an older abridged edition 
there were some errors in in that. Okay. Um, as you can imagine, you know, over thirty million <laughs> copies of Solzhenitsyn in different of just of the Gulag Archipelago and up in various languages. So this new one is is corrected. Uh, so that's the one I would recommend right now, especially for people looking for a new copy rather than a used copy. Very good. Um, now, Solzhenitsyn ends up, he, he comes to the United States, uh, so he's exiled, comes to the United States, uh, continues his writing, goes back to the Soviet Union, or goes back to Russia. W- what happened to him there? That's right. He decides, after all those years in exile, to return to Russia after 1991. So he goes back in, I think it was 1994-ish or so. Okay. And he he commits to living again. Um, he does a, a he doesn't go back directly to Moscow. He goes to the east of of Russia and works his way westward. Uh, does a tour essentially, talks about things, and then he um, he talks to people. He writes again. He, he gets more and more spiritual in his writings. Oh. Some of his meditations are thinking about what is Russia going forward. Um, there's a period where, I, in my opinion, he's too enamored of Putin. Um, mm. and, okay. um, but he, he, is, he is wrestling with and trying to finish out various themes of his lifelong work because he's, he knows he's aging. He doesn't know when he's going to die. Yeah. He dies in 2008 at the age of 89. But he knows he only has a precious number of years left. Yeah. And he keeps working. So. <laughs> he keeps working. He doesn't stop. He was a dedicated person that way. He knew, he knew what he had to do. Yeah. He had a vocation. Dr. Spaulding, thanks for being with me today. Can people follow up just by going to victimsofcommunism.org? Absolutely. And we look forward to um, having some of them at our event on Thursday or perhaps streaming it afterwards. Very good. Thank you. Father Benedict Rochelle. There are legitimate differences of opinion in any religion. There are differences of opinion in Catholicism. But in Catholicism, you expect that people will take the teaching of its supreme authority seriously. To go diametrically opposed to those teachings is to not be a Catholic. Someone in the name of Catholicism is sponsoring the destruction of human life lives of unborn children. And he got the name Catholic on the door. The highest authority in Catholicism and the encyclical Humanae Vitae, Evangelium Vitae, is absolutely clear that no Catholic can support abortion and that Catholics are responsible to take serious action against legalized abortion. The people you know and trust are on EWTN. How can we, mere mortals that we are, call God our Father? The Catholic Catechism says we can do this because His Son, who became man, has revealed the Father to us, and because His Spirit makes Him known to us. When we pray to the Father, we are in communion with Him and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We come to know and recognize Him with an ever-new sense of wonder. The first phrase of the Our Father is a blessing and adoration before it is a supplication. We can adore the Father because He has caused us to be reborn to His life by adopting us through baptism. He incorporates us into the body of His Christ. The free gift of adoption requires conversion on our part. 
Praying to our Father should develop in us two fundamental dispositions. Number one, the desire to become like God by responding to His grace. Number two, a humble and trusting heart. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. The Catechism defines evangelization as the proclamation of Christ and His gospel by word and the testimony of life in fulfillment of Christ's command. But what does that look like in real life? It looks like the St. Paul Evangelization volunteers out on the street, sharing the good news with people in a non-confrontational way, handing out free sacramentals, listening to them, praying for them, teaching them, planting seeds, and letting the Holy Spirit make them grow. Visit StreetEvangelization.com and learn more so you can get involved in real-life evangelization. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US1. That's realestateforlife.org. Ave Maria School of Law is the Roman Catholic law school in the United States. Consistently ranked in the Princeton Review as one of the best and most conservative law schools, as well as pre-law's most devout law school. Ave Maria School of Law provides a traditional legal education while emphasizing how the law intersects with the Catholic intellectual tradition and natural law philosophy. Ave Maria School of Law, unabashedly Catholic, consistently excellent. For more information, visit AveMariaLaw.edu. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. Last month, uh, Pope Francis stirred up a little bit of controversy when he said that he hoped that uh, hell was empty. Uh, He said this is personal opinion, uh, uh, really not a dogma. but it's it's a theme which we come across quite a bit. Uh, more and more uh, Catholics seem to accept the idea that all would be saved, and I'm not I'm not saying that's what Pope Francis is saying. But uh, you know the idea of an empty hell certainly comes close to thinking that all will be saved. The Catholic Church has very clear teaching on this over the centuries. The biblical material. Uh, is clear, although, of course, there's always challenges to exegete passages uh, clearly and in their original context. But I wanted to take some time to go over this idea of hope for an empty hell, or dare we hope that all would be saved, uh, using the language of the theologian uh, Hans Urs von Balthasar, and to help us sort through the different aspects of this debate We've asked Dr. Daniel Lindman to join us. He's Assistant Professor of Theology at Ave Maria University, and it's a great pleasure to have you with us today, Dr. Lindman. Thank you. 
Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. Well, let's let's talk. Let's go to the Holy Father first and his you know casual remark that he made. How did you hear it? What did you think of it? Well, I my sense is I I kind of know I think what he's wanting to express. I because I've heard this kind of thought before, yeah. and um, I would even like to say I've, I've I've felt something. You know, when you Con- consider or contemplate sort of the terrors of hell. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just your your fellow, your kind of brotherhood with your fellow man. Yeah. Uh, you should you should find that repugnant, and right. of course not desire that for any any of your fellow men. And so there should be this initial kind of fervent hope that oh, you know, please God that no one no one endures such a thing. Right. Right. Yeah. No. I. I. I understand that, and um, and I don't think you know anybody who hasn't uh, felt the horror of hell um, just simply hasn't thought about <laughs> hasn't thought about it. That's right. <laughs> um, he made clear he wasn't pronouncing a dogma. He, he's giving voice to a personal opinion. Uh, right now in. American Catholicism, there's a, a kind of a lax attitude towards questions of salvation. And there are many who, I think, you know, as they casually think about this, they like to believe that all will be saved. Now, once, once we get to that, we're dealing with a real challenge to Catholic teaching, right? I think, I think so. I think that that's, that's where you kind of you, you take a, a step too far mm-hmm. um, in, in that regard, um, as, as, you, as you have already alluded to, you know the the Church has defined emphatically at the Fourth Lateran Council that there is a hell and um, that it's eternal. Uh, that was that's really taking up again a teaching that was had against uh, sort of the errors of uh, origin, uh, and that was defined by the Council of Constantinople back in the five hundreds. So. Uh, the teaching about an eternal hell, where the punishments are eternal, that's just emphatic. Um, now, it is also important that the Church has not defined that anyone is in hell. Mm-hmm. So if we're just thinking of the ma- what, what has been magisterial, the Church has defined, aside from uh, demons, and demons are, are persons, too, so we can't, <laughs> we can't forget that. <laughs> um and so it's so in that sense when you're talking about empty hell, well, we know that at least there are some, uh, ex, you know, uh, persons uh, in, inhabiting hell uh, that are suffering those punishments, uh, and that's an important uh, teaching to keep in mind. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, uh, there's a lot of things to reflect on here, but but to the point you're asking about in particular about. Whether we can say, you know, that, that hell is not, uh, is, is, and that there's no no human persons there, uh, you 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 have to be very careful. Um, now, you've made reference to, to Balthazar's book. You know, dare we hope yeah. that all men be saved. Mm-hmm. Um, what's interesting, the the English title is almost more provocative than the German. You know, the German. <laughs> Okay. Is, uh, was, was dürfen wir Hoffnung? Which, is, which really is when, what, what may we hope? And it's, it's a little more speculative. And Interesting. I, 
there might be some various ways into interpreting Balthazar, and I've, I've read a number of things, but I, I think in, in one way, if you see it as kind of Balthazar focusing on sort of the, the extremes of what uh, hope can look towards in a certain way, and sort of, especially in light of God's mercy, uh, that's, I think that's kind of the direction that Balthazar was going. Um, but even there, it's it's notable that in his book, he doesn't take up one of the most explicit texts uh, in Scripture on this, and that's uh, from the letter of St. Jude. Um, and there in Jude, uh, verse 6, it says, And the angels did not, that did not keep their own position, but left their proper dwelling, have been kept by him in eternal chains in the deepest darkness until the judgment of the great day just as Sodom, Gomorrah, and the surrounding cities, which likewise acted immorally and indulged in unnatural lust, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Wow. Yeah. And that's, that's a terrifying verse in many ways, but uh, verses, but it's, it, again, maybe there's a creative way to interpret that, but it seems to me a kind of emphatic reading that no there's there seem to be human beings populating hell and suffering eternal fire um and this is not even to bring up the case of of judas which again the the broad patristic consensus is to uh, for how to take it it is better for him to have never been born right is that he is also uh suffering eternal punishment john paul ii and, in crossing the threshold of hope kind of backpedaled a little bit on that, where he says, even when Jesus yes, says does. of Judas, you, you know the passage. Yes. Yeah, okay. And that's, and uh, and this is where I am, uh, you know, I don't, I have the utmost respect for John Paul II, and I don't, I don't want uh, to sort of fight with him about that. <laughs> right. Um, but at the same time, um, my own disposition and a, a safe disposition, I think, is just a docility to the patristic uh, patrimony that mm-hmm. we have. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just am unwilling to just say, well, you know, let, let's maybe, you know, the fathers didn't have it right. Uh, I, I just, I, I, that makes me anxious. Sure, sure, understandably. And, uh, you know, the, the Avery Dulles, addressing this issue on the population of hell, back in an essay he did with the First Things in uh, 2003, Mm -hmm. said many saints and doctors of the Church, including St. Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas, have taken it as a revealed truth that Judas was reprobated. So, and he mentions Nero, too, which I had not, I was unaware of, but apparently some of the fathers placed Nero in that uh, company in hell. It is interesting, though, isn't it, that we don't have, like, a list of names uh, of those in hell. We, of course, know many of those in heaven, um, but we don't have a a similar list uh, for those in hell. And I think that, because it's not the Church's decision. Right, and I think, um, I don't think, you know, we'll never get such a thing. Right. Uh, And I think for the, the simple fact is that, you know, frankly speaking, the, the Church doesn't care about the souls in hell. Mm-hmm. Um, those, such, such are wholly beyond 
her power and wholly beyond her concern. Um, and so it just it becomes, uh, you know, uh, sort of a moot point, you know, there's a, you know, have a, a canon of the damned or something like that. You know, right. It's just, there's, there's no purpose. Um, you know, maybe it could define you know, something more strongly than it has um, about it being populated, but uh, even there, uh, it's, it becomes unclear that it that that's strictly speaking necessary because it's not clear to me that uh, I, that that would address the more fundamental error that's kind of behind this uh, appetite, as it were, or desire for uh, that all you know that that there be no man in hell. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that because um, it, it is a popular notion. And um, I assume what feeds this um, appetite is, again, uh, a simple reflection on the horrors of hell, but also, in our own culture, uh, an unwillingness to face the idea of any kind of eternal judgment. I think that's right, and I think it's also... Uh, it, it comes back to this, I think, that there's a misunderstanding even about what justice is and at what justice is aiming at. Um, if you have as your principal aim of justice sort of the correction of the the criminal or the one who has done wrong, um, then an eternal punishment makes no sense. Mm-hmm. But this is not the account of justice that we get from even Aristotle and then you know, Thomas Aquinas, and it's not really what's at root of, of the Catholic tradition, where there the understanding of justice is it's a restoring of, of proper order that had been violated by an unjust act. Um, and then, then when you start to understand that, then, then you start to consider, well, what kind of act is a sin. And then, and then to understand that, you have to understand what, that the sin is offense against God, and well, why is that such a grave thing? Well, this leads us to a contemplation, then, of the exceeding goodness of God. Um, and once one starts considering the surpassing goodness of God, uh, and, and how monstrous a thing sin is, mm-hmm. uh, then hell starts to make more sense. Uh, Dr. Lindman, hold it there. We're going to take a break. We're going to continue conversation. My guest, Dr. Daniel Lindman, is Assistant Professor of Theology at Ave Maria University. Our topic is, um, well, a number of questions surrounding uh, the Church's teaching on hell. Uh, do, dare we hope for a, quote, empty hell? This program is brought to you in part by Charity Mobile, a proud partner of Ave Maria Radio for over 15 years. Charity Mobile is the pro-life cell phone company and has sent nearly $2 million to thousands of pro-life charities. 4G LTE coverage is available nationwide, and 5% of your monthly plan price goes to your favorite pro-life charity. A video introduction is available at CharityMobile.com. Charity Mobile, everyday living, effortless giving. CharityMobile.com. 
This program brought to you in part by the following nonprofit, Christendom College. Looking for a life-changing experience this summer that will strengthen your child's faith and immerse them in a joyful Catholic culture? Well, send them to Christendom College's high school summer program, The Best Week Ever. It's located in the beautiful Shenandoah Valley of Virginia, and The Best Week Ever is one of those gifts that keeps on giving. You can learn more and apply at bestweekever.com. Mention Al Cresta when applying. That's bestweekever.com. Support for this Ave Maria radio program comes in part by the non-for-profit St. Anthony Services. Are you shopping for mortgage products, Catholic investing, Catholic health, real estate, or estate planning? StAnthonyServices.org can help you find a Catholic professional for these needs. They regularly connect faithful citizens with faith-based professionals that share our Christian values. More information at StAnthonyServices.org or 877-LIFE-US1. Do you own popular index mutual funds or ETFs? If so, you're automatically owned shares of companies that conflict with your moral beliefs. Ave Maria Mutual Funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors can invest in the no-load Ave Maria Mutual Funds. The experienced professional portfolio managers make decisions based on investment fundamentals and pro-life values. You can learn more about Ave Maria Mutual Funds today at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio. There was a big story about this Catholic college saying, oh, we are going to open our doors to anyone who identifies as a woman. So a male student coming in, but if he calls himself a woman, that's fine. This is all about diversity and equality. This is a Catholic women's college. And so, thanks be to God, there was a lot of pushback. And guess what? The school rescinded. How important it is not to give up and to remember that we can and should respectfully, always with love, express our concerns. It doesn't matter. The victory is up to God. But sometimes we do see that success in the victories, as is the case with St. Mary's College, who says now it needs to go back to its roots and get a deeper understanding of what it means to be a Catholic college for women. Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio. Weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio. When we refer to our Father who art in heaven, are we talking to a God who is far removed from us? On the contrary, says the Catholic Catechism, we are talking to a Father who is close to humble and contrite hearts. We assert that God is in the hearts of the just as he is in his holy temple. He is in heaven, his dwelling place. The Father's house is our homeland. Sin has exiled us, but conversion of heart enables us to return to the Father, to heaven. Christians are in the flesh, but they do not live according to the flesh. They spend their lives on earth, but are citizens of heaven. This is Peggy Stanton. And this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me is Dr. Daniel Lindman, Assistant Professor of Theology at Ave Maria University. And uh, our discussion today, uh, initiated by Pope Francis's comments last month, 
that uh, he was asked how he imagines hell, and he said he likes to think of hell as empty and hopes that uh, it is. Uh, he did make it clear that this was just a personal view, not a dogmatic case. And But the question of hell has been debated uh, by theologians over the years, the nature of it. Before the break, we were talking about the idea of justice uh, and that to think of hell simply as um, a matter of quid, a quid pro quo kind of justice, well, you get what you deserve in that sense, doesn't really quite get it. Uh, you were saying, though, Dr. Lendman, that to get a sense of the appropriateness of hell, we have to, first of all, understand the overwhelming goodness of God that is being rejected. Is, am I wrong? Reflection, maybe that's some, almost the, the backwards way to, to think of it. Go ahead. Um, yeah. And what I, mean, what I mean is just God, everything that's revealed to us in the Scriptures, there's a reason for it, and it's teaching us about God and about how we're to relate to God. And so if we take as just a given that there is this reality of hell, which I think we're bound to by mm-hmm. Scripture and by the magisterial guidance we have, then... Well, what what's the purpose of this of this teaching? Yeah. I, I think you can say, well, there, you know, there's this inspire kind of fear or something, but the, that's that's hardly sufficient, mm-hmm. it seems to me. Um, and, and especially since you know we don't want to dwell in that what they call servile fear, where we just are good because we fear yeah. hell. We want to. You know, not just because I dread the loss of heaven, pains of hell, but most of all because they offend Thee, my God. Right. Yeah. So this idea that we want to avoid sin because of love of God, mm-hmm. and um, and that I think then is where the real fruit of meditating upon the reality of hell comes. It's you know that that's such a thing that's almost unimaginably it does seem to be unimaginably horrible for us. Yes. Why would that? be proportionate and say, well, it would only be proportional if the one offended is just, is infinite goodness, infinitely innocent, where, whereas, where any kind of offense against him is just the most monstrous of deeds, it's yeah. just an utter horror um, in the, on the sort of face of creation. Very, that's very well said. Um, and let me kind of flip that for a minute, because you'll hear universalists argue that surely a God of goodness and a God of love will save everyone. It's intrinsic to his character. What's wrong with that kind of thinking? Well, um, I would argue a number of things is wrong with that way of thinking. And the first is, uh, that's not... It's not clear that that's what's been revealed. One, <laughs> okay. um, and, and, and that's that's uh, and you know, there's a lot of fathers who who seem to think otherwise. Uh, and two, this this is a it's a further challenge. And really, this is where it gets very complicated because you you really run into the whole question of the problem of evil. Um, and it's but but just the short answer. Here, I would say it's. I think it's. It's more surprising that God would tolerate any sin, at all, 
than that he would allow someone to be tormented in hell for eternity. Say that again. It is more surprising that God would create an order where there is any sin at all than that there is somebody in an order where there's someone suffering in hell. Okay. Okay. The, the, the monstrosity of sin is so immeasurably worse than the punishment that would be accorded it. Yeah. Very good. Um, now, let me go over to uh, uh, Hanser Zambalthazar's uh, thinking. Uh, do What do you believe he was trying to get across in that book? Hmm. I, you know, I'm not sure, I, I have to say. Um, okay. I've heard a lot of takes on it. One I like, probably, I, I really like, is it, it's sort of the most kind of sympathetic read, I think. Um, it was forwarded by a, I saw this in an article in Pro Ecclesia, where um, it's really, he sees this idea that um, Balthazar's position is a kind of, mean, where he's in this dynamic hope where we're moving away from uh, damnation and and toward salvation. And then uh, in, in this context of that hope, um, you have uh, hell is not something that you consider as a, with, with respect to the fate of others, but it becomes a real warning, a personal warning to us from Christ. Uh, this uh, this article, I think Cameron Surrey, I think is the uh, the okay. author of this article. So, um, I think that that's a good way to understand what Balthazar was up to. Um, again, I'm not. I, I don't want to be definitive like that's the reading, but it's at least it seems to me a way to read him that's uh, very helpful um, and, and more sympathetic. Yeah, yeah, and then there are, as you point out, there there are different reads uh, of uh, von Balthazar uh, on this question. Um, the The biblical material on this uh, certainly you look the statements of Jesus himself, and of course there's questions about Gehenna and. Um, the, the kind of language that he uses to what is it metaphorical is it symbolic all this but even even just looking at the nature of the, the, the rhetoric itself it seems clear that he's pulling out all the stops I mean I'm not sure what he could have said to describe this uh, horrific uh, final reality for those who uh, are in some way rejecting the love of God I mean, is that how you read him? That I, I think that's a, a, a very well put. That at, at a certain point, it's, uh, when you read sort of the universalist arguments forwarded by maybe uh, David Bentley Hart and others, you can start to wonder what could Christ have possibly said to make it clear yeah. that there is a hell and <laughs> no, the right, people. Right. I mean, uh, and since everything seems you can twist it in one way or another, and that's what it really seems to me that you you, you know it's like well if hell isn't uh, eternal then then the same word is used for heaven 
Right? Yeah, that's Doesn't right. Heaven not eternal. Well, we got we have we have real real questions here, and there's been a lot of good work uh, answering that. Uh, and that's but that's those are real challenges that uh, and the there's a kind of facile facile approach to the gospel that uh, is really found in the, this a universalist approach. Again, that I would argue is rooted in the misunderstanding of justice and God's goodness, and as well as just this kind of misunderstanding of the scriptures. Yeah, yeah. Um, take us back uh, to the consensus of the fathers on this. Um, you mentioned uh, David Bentley Harp and uh, others who kind of follow in his follow him. The, like to point out that we've got statements from uh, quote the fathers which are beyond origin uh, not just origin um who's not necessarily considered one of the fathers anyways but um, that's right you know but we have in early christian theology and thinking about these things that we have some uh, impressive names that uh, might be claimed by universalists. Uh, do we have significant uh, statements by any of the fathers that would be universalist? Significant statements by the fathers that would be sort of universalist fathers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I th- I think the most most uh, impressive one would be uh, Saint Gregory of Nyssa. Yeah. Okay, and that's uh, as far as I can tell. Though he's following origin because uh, Saint Gregory of Nyssa is very, uh, very Platonist, um, and uh, again, that that kind of misunderstanding about what justice aims at, I think, is what's animating uh, Nyssa's uh, Gregory of Nyssa's position on this as well. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, uh, it's, it's from my uh, understanding, my reading, I I don't think there was any father who adopted a, a universalist position until Origen. Yeah. Um, and then afterwards, you know, you have uh, uh, Saint Augustine, most notably, and uh, and then of course the the, the fathers and the, the just the proclamations of the Church there at uh, Constantinople and at um, Lateran that just Make it clear what the what the position of the church is. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, there's not anybody who talk tries to claim that the consensus of the fathers is universalist. Simply doesn't know uh, what he's talking about. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Um, and that it's just again, there's we have to be uh, docile to the tradition that's handed down to us about these things, even when it makes us uncomfortable. You know, we're not. We can't be the ones that measure it. We have to be measured by it. Yeah. Um, and that's that's the real challenge. And I guess one of the, the, the key point I was trying to make a little earlier is that uh, if we allow this consideration to kind of impact us, and we consider it, really moves us to appreciate the goodness of God. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's what it's. That's as I understand you. That's what it's supposed to do. That is. The, the, in a sense, the pedagogical purpose of hell is to make us reflect 
upon the goodness of God and, and what it means to offend uh, this majesty. Um, That's right. Yeah. The all-holy one, you know, who is goodness itself and love himself. And, uh, and then the consequence of that should be then a, a desire to love him more and the desire to see him. And that's, yeah. a, that's a very beautiful thing indeed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, and there's something else here that I don't hear often brought up, and that is there's the trauma uh, of the holy that you see in Old Testament passages where uh, the extraordinary holiness of God uh, can, if it even touches um sinful man i'm thinking here of Uzza as he tries to steady the ark and he ends up dead um and also in terms of the the blessed mother um the reason for her immaculate conception it seems to me is that uh the all holy one who inhabits eternity to take up residence within a womb of a sinful person would be to evaporate that person. It would, it would be yeah, terrible. Yeah, that would be the sense. You, so you get this, again, this great insight into the, the mercy and love of God. Yeah, 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 exactly. Dr. Lenman, thank you for taking the time to be with me today. I greatly appreciate it and hope we can talk again in the future. Thank you so much. It was just a joy. Dr. Daniel Lenman, Assistant Professor of Theology at Ave Maria University. We are the pro-life generation passionate about building the culture of life in our health care and in our nation. But not all health care options are equally pro-life and some provide morally objectionable procedures. CMF Curo is different. CMF Curo is a pro-life Catholic health care ministry providing a pathway for its members to build the culture of life in their health care choices, not destroy it. Learn more about CMF Curo at MyCatholicHealthCare.com. That's MyCatholicHealthCare.com. The following program is brought to you in part by MyCatholicWill.com. Surveys show that more than half of Americans do not have a will. At MyCatholicWill.com, it takes as little as 15 minutes to write your will and secure a legacy of faith. MyCatholicWill.com is the exclusive online destination for creating a Catholic will. The process of writing a will is simple and now more accessible than ever. MyCatholicWill.com, a legacy of faith for those you love. Maybe you've been hearing a lot about the need to make a spiritual communion while participating from home in a live-streamed or broadcast Mass. There's more to it than reciting the act of spiritual communion. We should begin by having sincere repentance for our sins and affirming our belief that Christ's death redeemed us. Next, we call to mind the spiritual gifts found in Christ's sacrifice and thank God earnestly for them. Now we are disposed to pray the traditional prayer of spiritual communion. Jesus, I embrace you and unite myself wholly to you. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US1. That's realestateforlife.org. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. Let me, uh, again, 
just make available for you follow-up information on this question of health. Jimmy Aiken's uh, essay, short, actually it's a commentary, Being Precise About Catholic Church Teaching on Hell. Dr. Ralph Martin's The uh, Occupancy of Hell. We've got The Older uh, Population of Hell by uh, the late uh, Cardinal Avery Dulles. Uh, those are all available in the uh, Cresta Guest Archives, and, and more will be there as well. But those are some that you'll be able to take a look at today. And I would also urge you to listen to this two-hour uh, conversation that uh, Dr. Ralph Martin, Dr. Michael McClymont, and myself held on the question of universalism and whether, in fact, there's any way of being faithful to the Catholic tradition and saying that all will be saved. Can't be done, but we talk about it for two hours. Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. To follow up on any of the guests or information presented on today's program, visit the Cresta Guest Archive at AveMariaRadio.net. That's A-V-E-M-A-R-I-A Radio.net. To listen to this or any other edition of Cresta in the Afternoon, visit the audio archives at AveMariaRadio.net. Or to order a CD of the program, call 734-930-4506 or email orders at AveMariaRadio.net. That's 734-930-4506 or orders at AveMariaRadio.net.